0: Welcome, everybody, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on this episode, I'm going to be discussing the Premier League origin story, which begins way, way back in the grand old days of 1992. But before we get to that, let's talk about today. The Premier League of 2020 is the richest league in world soccer. The league's TV revenue alone is staggering, with clubs earning a combined total of £2.45 billion last season. That's billion with a B, and that's last season alone. Uh, drilling a little deeper, 19th place Watford, last place Norwich combined to receive about £200 million in overall prize money themselves. By contrast, the Bundesliga deal for the same year brought in 1.16. 6 billion euros with 930 million euros set aside for Bundesliga teams the remaining 230 million euros going to clubs in Bundesliga 2. Not to overwhelm you with numbers right away, and we're going to take a break from financials after this, but what that means is that the bottom two teams in the Premier League last season got about the same amount of TV revenue as the entire German second division. But more telling, the teams that finished in the last two spots in the Bundesliga got a combined total of about 58 million, 59 million euros, so a little more than half of what Watford alone earned. Not bad. Champions Bayern Munich got the largest percentage of the pie in Germany, bringing in about 68 million euros for their domestic campaign. That's certainly not chump change. I would like 68 million euros, for example, but does look a little meager when compared to, say, Newcastle, who finished 13th last season, getting 120 million pounds themselves. And obviously, financials alone does not a successful league make. If it did, a Premier League team would win the Champions League every season as opposed to not every season, which is their current policy and plan. But the point I'm trying to get at is that the TV revenue that the league is making is superior to Essentially any league in the world and several leagues in the world combined. And I think that amount of TV money, the amount of revenue is something that was sort of seen, identified as a potential opportunity way back in the 80s and 90s and does explain the foundation of the Premier League, the origin of the league itself. Which is what we're going to talk about now, because if you're like me, you're aware that the Premier League is rich. We know that now. It's been established. But it's also a slightly strange creation in that it is part of English football and has existed for a very long time, and yet simultaneously was founded in 1992. It used to be the first division, but now the first division is League One, which is the third division. And there's the Premier League and the championship. The terminology can be a little bit confusing, and there is a reason for that because you had a sort of fractured moment. Moment that ended in a slightly harmonious but not that harmonious way. Uh, so we're going to look now at why it has that millennial birthday of 1992 and why that birthday goes hand in hand with the Premier League's wealth. And to do that, we're first going to go back to the 1980s, which is also something that J.J. Abrams has said many, many times, but I'm saying it right now for the purposes of this podcast. Uh, The 1980s were not the best of times for English football, as pointed out by Jason Rodriguez at The Guardian. There were stadium disasters, rampant hooliganism, declining attendances and match day revenue, English stars moving to other leagues. And I do feel like there's a chance that that was the straw that broke the camel's back. We can't have our players going to other leagues. That's, That's shameful. That's wrong. Our monocles will fall off. We've got to do something. Uh, what had been happening throughout the 1980s is the heads of the self-appointed Big Five clubs, that would be Arsenal, Everton, Liverpool, Man United, and Tottenham, argued that the top division in general, and their clubs in particular, invested more money into the game, uh, had more consistent historical success, and therefore deserved a much larger slice of the pie. The Big Five, again, so-called, did contemplate breaking away multiple times in the 1980s, but instead renegotiated for more favorable terms and stayed rooted to the English Football League, who were in charge of the divisions at that time. Uh, Here's a good example. In 1988, the issue almost comes to a head. The leaders of those clubs meet with Greg Dyke, who is then the head of ITV. He basically uh, proposes the idea, we'll just show the Big Five matches on ITV. We'll buy your rights separately from the rest of the 22 Clubs in the league's elite First Division. Uh, from a Paul McInnes piece, quote, The Football League found out about the discussion and went into conniptions. So desperate were they to prevent such a deal, they sold TV rights to the entire First Division for four years on terms that suited both broadcaster and clubs. ITV could show matches at a new time of 5pm on Sunday. The clubs got to keep 75% of the money rather than sharing 50% with lower league clubs as had previously been the case end quote so the slice of pie was now appropriately larger at least for that time period however as 1992 approaches and that deal starts to come to an end Arsenal chairman David Dean proposes the next logical step in the process why settle for a slice of pie when you could just steal the whole thing uh, and that is is when the breakaway talks really do escalate. Now, at this time, the Football League is already very, very aware of the value of TV broadcasts. Uh, David Cohen for The Guardian uh, explained it well. In October 1990, the Football League had produced a document One Game, One Team, One Voice, which called for unity and a joint managing board with the English FA. In it, the league says, uh, with respect to television, football is about to enter an era of unprecedented opportunity, so basically we should work together to capitalize upon that keep things working just fine. One group who were not as thrilled about that offer to work as a unit with the F.A., were the English FA. Led by Sir Bert Millichip, the Football Association saw the Football League's plan as usurping some of their authority, and rather than go the unity route, took the opposite approach. In a surprise move, a very surprise move, the FA sanctioned the Breakaway League on the grounds that there were promises to reduce the number of teams in the top flight from 22 to 18, which would theoretically mean less fixture congestion for national team players. Fewer games, fewer minutes, they'll be fresher for the nation and that will be good for us there's also some speculation that maybe the heads of the fa thought they would be the logical organization to then run the new breakaway league but were quickly disabused of that notion by the individual club chair owners who again really really wanted that whole delicious pie uh, there's also some argument that that was never really in the fa's plans because Milichip himself sort of dismissed that outright or at the very least his actions did During an organizational meeting involving the FA, the various clubs who had become interested in this breakaway league, Millichip was said to have responded to a question about the number of teams in the competition with the enduring line, it's your league, you decide. So basically they're debating, there's 22 teams right now in the top flight, there need to be 18, that's what we've discussed, that's how we've kind of made this happen, and then it sounds like (laughs) Millichip just said like, yeah, Do what you want. It's your league, which maybe he meant metaphorically, but the uh, individual club chairman took very literally to mean you make your decisions. You're running your own league. It's up to you. And that's exactly what they did. In very short order, they established a few key operational procedures. Again, this comes from Paul McInnes. The first was that within the Premier League, everything would be voted on by the clubs with every club having one vote, and every vote requiring two-thirds majority to pass. So there's no more subcommittees, there's no more meetings or anything like that. You're just coming in, you're voting, everybody gets one vote, two-thirds, we're done, we're out of here. Secondly, and this is a big one, all TV revenue would be split in a new way. So the Premier League would no longer share its money with lower divisions, but at the behest of smaller clubs to kind of get them all on board, it would instead allocate them along specific lines that we will get into later. But for now, all you need to know is that with these sort of meetings in place, with these procedures now established, the league is going to happen. They're not going to share that money with the lower divisions, but they are going to run everything themselves and keep all of the pie that they possibly can. More on the creation of the Premier League in just a moment. We're going to get into sort of the, the challenges they faced, how they came to kind of come together, and what it has meant for English soccer as a whole. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk about today's sponsor because this episode of Soccer 101 is brought to you by ExpressVPN. If you're not familiar with what a VPN does, uh, or ExpressVPN specifically, they let you change your online location so you can control where you want sites to think you're located. Not necessarily where you are, but where you want them to think you're from. All you have to do is open the app, you select a location, you tap one button to connect, seriously one button, and refresh the page to access thousands of new shows and movies. You can choose from uh, almost 100 different countries, which essentially allows you to supercharge your Netflix subscription with way more content because, say, you want to watch The Dark Knight or maybe Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which are not available on American Netflix, but they are on the Canadian version, so you could get that. Rick and Morty is on French Netflix, but in English, I'm assuming. I have not tried, but I'm guessing it's there. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is on Australian Netflix. I hope they've dubbed it with an Aussie accent. I doubt they have. Uh, But this does work with any streaming service. It could be Hulu, it could be BBC iPlayer, YouTube. I wonder what you could possibly use BBC iPlayer for. Maybe, like, sort of like matches that occurred like on that day or something who knows and for uk residents they can connect to the us and use paypal to purchase peacock premium this lets them watch the premier league for just five dollars a month which is by far the cheapest subscription they can get so something to consider there you can stream in hd no problem there's no buffering or lag it's compatible with all your devices phones laptops media consoles smart tvs or more All devices, as I said, and you can change that location and encrypt your data, and it lets you surf the web while staying safely anonymous. So you can go to expressvpn.com slash soccer to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash soccer for an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Thank you very, very much to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of Soccer 101. Now let's get back to talking Premier League, to extend the pie analogy just a little bit further, which I'm going to do now, remember in the cartoons how the aroma of the pie would sort of come wafting over and it would form into beckoning hands that were drawing in the, for some reason, floating protagonist? Uh, Well, for purposes of this explanation, that beckoning hand belongs to Rupert Murdoch, which is a creepy image, I apologize, but it's sort of true. Because after legal challenges and averting the threat of a looming player strike, the Breakaway League still needed to get itself on television. That's kind of important and was sort of the goal. A meeting was set for May in 1992, and ITV were the favorites to land the deal, given that their director was one of the people who initially said, You all should form this Breakaway League, so there's the relationship there, it seems like it's kind of a foregone conclusion, and then comes Rupert Murdoch. It's obviously a very long, complicated financial business story about which books are written. But the gist is that essentially ITV, very much the front runners, Rupert Murdoch comes in, puts in a 304 million pound bid for a five-year deal and blows everybody away. BBC was partnered with them, so they get the highlights packages, which then allow them to do match of the day, which I do love and enjoy. This story that I, as I understand it, goes, which is very fitting for sort of, how the Premier League was formed, but then also the money and the kind of self-interest that's involved there too. The story goes that Sky had uh, submitted a bid, ITV presented theirs in person. So after that presentation, Alan Sugar, who had recently acquired control of Spurs, and also had a deal to manufacture Sky satellite dishes, uh, reportedly called Sky's chief executive, used some colorful language and said, blow them out of the water. You all can win this bid if you put in the right offer. And that is exactly what they did, the right offer being a lot of money. A few months later, in August 1992, 22 teams took part in the inaugural Premier League season, and the rest is history. Obviously, there's lots of formational meetings and everything like that, but we don't need bureaucratic minutes. We just want the gist. And this is where I would like to talk about financial ramifications of things for a moment. Uh, In some ways, the equal voting and revenue sharing decisions made during that foundational meeting were revolutionary. There was no assured dominance for one or two teams, but instead a logical equality in voting and a logical procedure for financial compensation. Compensation. Domestic broadcast revenues were 50% equally shared, 25% based on matches broadcast, 25% based on league table finish, which is why if you're Liverpool, you're going to make more money than Norwich, but it's not going to be an absolutely astronomical, inconceivable difference the way you might get in other leagues. And again, that's for domestic broadcast, central commercial revenues and international broadcasting revenues were uh, equally shared by all clubs. This is a major reason why even the worst teams in the Premier League are able to financially outperform other top leagues or teams in their similar positions in other top leagues. In Spain, Barcelona and Real Madrid tend to get about four times more TV revenue than their smaller clubs. Not so the case in England. However, the decision by the Premier League not to spread that wealth around has obviously had negative impacts as well. Uh, to start by moving to Satellite and changing the schedule. The basic ideas of some games not being on television, uh, the uh, abandonment of 3 p.m. Saturday kickoffs, which is a thing that Daryl gets sad about. Those sort of longstanding traditions are no more. Uh, Then there's the money itself, which is the big one. Historically, the English game was about sharing. Until 1983, gate sharing ensured that away teams received about 20% of all match day income. TV money was shared equally amongst all clubs. So, for example, I believe the first FA Cup broadcast Broadcast, everybody just got the the same percentage if they were in the competition. That's how it went. With Premier League clubs now keeping that money, the river was effectively dammed and things, not surprisingly, dried up. By 2004, which again is only 12 years after the start of the Premier League, 36 of the 72 football league clubs had been insolvent or were in administration or receivership, which is obviously not good. And it's obviously also the case that uh, the Premier League is not solely to blame for that. There's mismanagement, there is financial or economic downturns, but it definitely seems to be, at least in my opinion, a valid argument that more money coming in from the top league for that TV revenue spread over the other leagues would help development would make teams more financially stable and i think probably help with investment a little bit that's not to say that the premier league is not kicking down any money at all it does so in two different ways number one as their website notes it does support the efl with more than 140 million pounds per season in solidarity payments as well as ring-fenced youth development grants yes i read that phrase directly because i don't know what it means And look, obviously, 140 million pounds is not an inconsequential amount of money. I'm not trying to dismiss that, but I would like to put it in proper context. Uh, 140 million in solidarity payments. Let's look at, say, Brighton when they finished 17th in the 2018-2019 season. Narrowly avoided relegation. Their percentage of TV revenue for that season alone was 105 million pounds. So a team that is... Barely staying up and has done way better since then, again, because of the money for staying up, uh, is making a not dissimilar amount of money from the entire like funds distributed to the lower divisions. That is, in my mind, sort of an issue. Uh, Huddersfield, another one, getting parachute payments of $41.5 million their first season back of the championship – Number one, it shows you, hey, maybe maybe parachute payments aren't the worst thing, but it also shows the amount of money that the Premier League is able to spread out if it so chooses. Again, that is on par with the maximum money that some teams are making in the Bundesliga. So in the end, I think what I'm kind of getting at is that the establishment of the Premier League truly is, in my opinion, a double-edged sword. It's allowed the Premier League to become the most well-known soccer league in the world, with stars from all over the globe regularly brought in for astronomical transfer fees. I would also argue. At least to some extent that the English national team has benefited from the competitiveness of the league, as well as more recently by the influx of foreign talent and foreign managers. Uh, New ideas, new concepts help sort of diversify the team, bring in new approaches, bring in new ideas, and then they make the World Cup semifinals, not the final, not quite yet coming home. And then, obviously, the money has not hurt for those teams that have stayed alive consistently in the Premier League. They're doing just fine. But it has caused massive wealth disparity, as evidenced by the number of clubs that have had significant financial issues. There's also a compelling argument, contrary to what I just pointed out, that uh, the national team has been limited because the number of minutes available to young English players and the sort of faith given to those players because the Premier League is so competitive and there's so much money there, you can't risk it on bringing through a 17-, 18-, 19-year-old and hoping they come good – You're always going to kind of go for the finished product, or at least that tends to be the instinct that finished product is not a 17 year old Englishman, which is why you don't get as many younger players coming through again, changing a little bit these days, but still not fully. But what you do get is a very complicated system that has lots and lots of money, has lots and lots of strength, and certainly has lots and lots of drawbacks as well. That about wraps it up for this episode of Soccer 101. You can find many more episodes in this feed and many more to come. I think the current plan is for Daryl to record an episode next week, so you can look forward to that. You can also obviously find the Total Soccer Show in our own feed where we put out episodes many times a week, many, many episodes about many, many things. But for now, I'll just say I've been Taylor Rockwell, and thanks for listening.